When Stuff journalist Michael Wright started looking into New Zealand's worst disaster, he knew the ending. 257 people killed when an Air New Zealand DC-10 slammed into the side of Mount Erebus in Antarctica on the 28th of November 1979. Michael had heard the famous phrase, An orchestrated litany of lies. But like a lot of New Zealanders, he didn't know much more. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and this is The Detail. Today, how Michael Wright collected more than 100 hours of archives and interviews with dozens of people to retell the story for a series of podcasts called White Silence. And after all that, he's reached the same conclusion. This was a tragedy and controversy that remains unresolved even today couldn't be more emblematic of Erebus that 40 years later we still haven't got a memorial to the disaster and when we try and do it for the 40th even that's hard work for a whole lot of reasons some of which includes you know the local opposition to it. Michael's decision to investigate Erebus was nothing to do with the disaster itself or even delving into a New Zealand mystery. I was listening to another podcast a couple of years ago about Watergate in the States and the whole scandal and it was amazing, it was brilliant. And it was really good because even though you know what Watergate is, most people don't actually know that much about it. And they told it in a really interesting way. They found characters sort of on the margins or behind the scenes who could offer their opinions. And then I thought, could you apply that model to New Zealand? And first I thought Springbok tour, just pulling, you know, random recent historical events out of my brain. Nah, it's not going to work. And then I thought, what about Erebus, not really knowing much about it? And it was immediately obvious that there was enough of a story there to tell one and that it was something that if I wasn't born when it happened. I know very little about it and I got the sense that if I didn't, most other people my age especially probably didn't either. So it would have had that what name recognition. Everyone knows about Erebus, that there was this plane crash. And we're waking today to one of the grimmest reports since these programmes began. On the DC-10 crash in the Antarctic yesterday, the facts as we have them at the moment can be put as simply as this. An Air New Zealand DC-10 passenger plane on a scenic flight to and from the Antarctic was reported overdue yesterday evening. Bob Thompson, the head of the Antarctic Division of the DSIR, describes the crash scene. From the air, it appears to have scattered over two or three hundred yards. But most of us don't really know that much about what happened. And once you look into what happened, and more importantly what happened afterwards, there is this huge saga that is quite an important story. Inquiries were launched, the first blaming the pilots, while the second famously accused the airline of a cover-up. Once the plane crashed, there were two investigations. There was the immediate air accident investigation, which always happens after a crash. It's like a statutory obligation that um, civil aviation needs to investigate what happened. But there was also the Royal Commission of Inquiry, which was chaired, or the commissioner was Justice Peter Mann, and he looked into it on a much wider scale, and he found that Air New Zealand was basically entirely at fault here. There were some other little things, but it was more or less all Air New Zealand's fault. And his findings culminated in that line. There was an orchestrated litany of lies. Basically, they had conspired to deceive him at this commission, and not only had they stuffed up, they'd tried to cover that, cover up. So that was the initial controversy because that's a hell of a finding against you know the national carrier. But from there, things kind of started to unravel because really of the language that he'd used in New Zealand and its owner, the government, were furious. 
challenged it legally in court as they could and yeah this huge second round of fighting on a much wider sort of large, grander scale took off and Erebus was the crash itself almost got lost in all of this controversy that started swirling around you had Peter Barn, you had the government you had Robert Muldoon appeal court privy council all these things you know what is it's a plane crash and suddenly it's this huge stoush as journalists say when you started digging into it where did you start because you've collected a huge amount of material seriously you can just go and read the wikipedia page for the erebus crash and you can see that there is a huge saga that plays out there and it was probably there that i learned things like that orchestrated litany of lies claim was thrown out by the court of appeal and no longer sits within the the Royal Commissioner's findings per se. That very specific part of his findings were found to be out of bounds, basically. He, it wasn't within his jurisdiction to say it, and he didn't give the right of reply, so no, that will not be allowed to stand. But other than that, once you start reading, I mean, there's a lot's been written about it. First things I read were the accident reports, which was the Chippendale report. Ron Chippendale was the air accident investigator at the time, and the Marne report. They were the two sort of key documents, if you like, there are books around that. Peter Mann's written one. Uh, Paul Holmes wrote one about 10 years ago. Uh, Gordon Vetti, one of the Air New Zealand pilots who was quite, uh, played quite an important role at the commission, he wrote one. And there's a couple of others as well. So you read all of those sort of primary and secondary texts as you could. Then I got my hands on the Royal Commission documents, which was the transcript of the entire thing, which is about 3,000 pages long all the briefs of evidence, exhibits, final submissions, all those sorts of things, and that's, you started sort of sifting through those to, to sort of pick out the story and put a story together. How am we going to tell the story from the crash all the way through to sort of more or less present day and sort of map it out? Who did you talk Hammond. to first? The very first person I spoke to was Sam Mann, which Son you, of? Son of Justice Peter, which you might be able to tell when you listen to the podcast because the sound is really crap because <laughs> I'm not a... Uh, radio journo, they gave me this this you know, recorder and a microphone and off I went to see Sam in a room with an open window and a non-shotgun mic, so there's just bird song and all this outside noise f- um, flittering in. But he was one of the people I'd approached sort of before I even got into it because I thought if you're going to do this, you're going to need certain people are going to have to be on board. Something that you have to do is address Peter Mann, who's mm. dead, but... Um, you need to hear from someone in his orbit. I think in any game, you want the rules to stay the same. And I think that's what he found abhorrent in the aftermath of the Erebus thing. Overriding all of that would be the fact that somebody was trying to take him for a fall, and that would never, <laughs> that was never going to happen. The same with the pilots. They were just, regardless of what you think happened in this crash, there were certain people with certain voices you needed to hear from. So, Sam Mann. And the Collins family, who I didn't interview first, but um, approached very early on to see if they were willing to take part. With these interviews, did you get any surprises? Jim McClay, who you might hear in episode five, was a really interesting interviewee because he's, as we say, one of the very few people left who was at that echelon at that time. You what know, was he his was role? he was the Attorney General at the time of the crash, so it was his call to call a royal commission, and he was central to appointing. Peter Mann, and he was speaking to the likes of you know, Muldoon and the Minister of Civil Aviation, all these people at the time of the crash and immediately afterwards. And one of the things he said was um, his big regret for Erebus is that he appointed Mann alone. I regret that. 
I feel that another commissioner or group of commissioners, perhaps two, would have leavened some of the language that was used in the report. Particularly, I don't think two other commissioners would ever have put their signature to the orchestrated litany of lies. He let him do the commission himself, which was not the government's plan. They wanted two or three people probably on there, including at least one aviation expert because it was going to be such a technical inquiry. And, yeah, he said, Man wrote to me and asked to do it himself. He said, I can do it myself. It's better if the technical experts are on the other side of the bar, if you like, <clears throat> so everyone can hear what they have to say and then I can um, bring it all together. Clay eventually said yes and after the facts saw that, you know, two or three people would never have put their names to a phrase like orchestrated litany of lies, which has a lot to answer for that phrase. A lot of things came after that and because of it. So, um, yeah, had he not relented, we might not have been quite in the position we were in mm. afterwards. And he just came out. Well, I didn't have to prize this out of him at all. He just sort of told me. And I thought, oh, that's... I hadn't thought about that as a big what-if moment. Do you agree with him? Would it have made a huge difference if he'd, there'd been more Oh, people? very much so. I, th- I mean, I can't know, but, yeah, it, it would be hard to imagine two or three people all agreeing to this sort of language. And if they don't use exactly that language, I think you don't have as much of a problem afterwards in terms of yeah, Ian New Zealand being really angry about the findings. I think they would have swallowed reasonably adverse findings, mm. but they were not going to stand for that type of language and that type of finger-pointing about them being, you know, conspirators. An orchestrated litany of lies. What does it mean? It appears in the Marne report um, under a section that's called something like the Conduct of the Airline Act, the Royal Commission. So Marne was really unhappy during the commission, and he wrote about this later, about New Zealand being disingenuous as he saw it, um, you know, finding it hard to get briefs of evidence, um, you know, not being able to produce documents or originals of documents, those sorts of things. And so after 50 witnesses, nearly 300 exhibits and more than 3,000 pages of evidence, Peter Mann released his own report exonerating the pilots. He said the crash had been caused entirely by mistakes from Air New Zealand, which the airline then tried to cover up. So he was... You know, pretty upset about this by the end of it, obviously, as we know from his language. And so he resolved to write this part of it, right at the end of his report where he tore strips off them, basically, not only for having caused the crash, more or less, through systemic failures in their airline flight operations, but um, having tried to cover that up and tried to pass the buck, basically, and he didn't want to stand for it. So he wrote as much, and it culminated in that phrase, an orchestrated litany of lies, and... That was, yeah, like I say, very specifically only referring to the fact that Air New Zealand had tried to deceive him at the commission. It didn't relate necessarily to actions that might have caused the crash. It was just this after-the-fact point, which is kind of another thing that gets forgotten when you... If you ask somebody who's you know vaguely familiar with Erebus Orchestrated and realise, oh, yeah, Air New Zealand, that was all big cover-up. Hmm. You know, well, that's not wrong but yeah more specifically it's a very specific part of the findings you know so it was again it overrode everything and it was only ever meant to be applied to this very small part of the judge's findings obviously it's endured because it's enduring as a soundbite but it's still in the report it wasn't it was never actually removed from the report there were sort of efforts made to say well maybe we should actually strike these lines this path from the report and um, it was decided no it's been 
clearly advertised publicly enough that this court case has happened and that this no longer stands. You weren't born when the crash happened. Was it kind of shocking hearing some of the language? You know, when I listened to, to your podcast and hearing the response of the Chief Executive of Air New Zealand at the time and the way he spoke and also the way the Prime Minister spoke, it's such a contrast, isn't it, to today? I'm not sure if that is a sign of the times or just a sign of the individuals who happened to be in those positions at that time and because they were central figures, the Prime Minister and the Chief Executive of the airline, say. But, yeah, it is. I cannot imagine a, a 2019 version of a tragedy like this where people in those positions conduct themselves that way. The accusation of a cover-up led to a public war of words between the former judge and the Prime Minister. His comments about me today are not only uncalled for, they're really quite unfortunate. It's loose talk of a kind that we don't expect from a High Court judge. And that was another interesting thing, actually, that Jim McClay spoke about that I wasn't really aware of greatly beforehand, but the fact that after the Mann report was released, or particularly after the Court of Appeal finding came out that struck down that orchestrated litany of lies, Muldoon got really, really involved. He got right down into the weeds and started arguing you know, facts, basically, in the in the Mann report, which was not up for debate. You cannot challenge a commissioner's you know, factual findings like that. It was only through this legal technicality they were looking at this specific point. There's been a lot of talk of Mr Justice Mann's courage. Well, let him display his courage and clear the rest that he's pointing the finger at and say precisely who it is that he believes is guilty of those offences. That's all I've got to say to Mr Justice Mann. Muldoon, just sort of Winfred Maclay and others were sort of watching me like, this is just not what a Prime Minister should be doing. It was certainly unusual for a Prime Minister to say, well, we appointed this Commission of Inquiry, it has reported A, and I think not A. That I found quite unusual, and as it became more personal, quite unpleasant. You cannot get involved to this degree in you know, legal proceedings like this. And yet, like we said, I think it would be the equivalent of John Key you know, weighing in on what he thought caused the CTV building to collapse or something. It's just not done. So, yeah, in that sense, it was, it was shocking. I'm just not sure if it was because 40 years ago people could get away with those sorts of things or Muldoon was you know, a law unto himself in that sense. The other day I was looking at the 60 Minutes uh, piece. These are the final moments of Flight 901, Film taken on board the DC-10 moments before it slammed into the slopes of Mount Erebus at 500 kilometres an hour. You know, I was shocked when I opened it up and there were these people who were about to die. 257 people are about to die. Was that a hard decision to make? To publish? Yeah. Well, not to publish. Um, it wasn't easy. We, did, we thought about it for a while before we decided to do it and we spoke to people who were quoted in the story that accompanied it before we made the decision when we spoke to those people it was look we're considering doing this what do you think about it and what's your relationship with this video then and the feedback we got from them was it's not negative not don't do it it was basically yeah I'm fine with it or uh, it, it's, a, it's, up, it's up to you it's needed a sort of decision for you to make so with that in mind we thought this piece of tape is its shocking on the one hand because of the context in which it exists and you know what's going to happen. It, it's, the tape itself visually is quite benign. It's just a bunch of people you know, walking around an air, 
looking aircraft out the kept on looking out the window mm. until you know what and where and what. Um, but the main reason to do it, as we said in there, was to remember these people, that all everything that's happened in Erebus and everything that we've spoken about for probably four-plus of the six episodes has been what came afterwards and all of the fallout and bickering and all of the fighting and recrimination, all of this. And it's easy to forget that there were 257 people. <clears throat> and we just say that. We just say you know, that 257 people were killed. We obviously speak to several families of victims throughout the podcast, but it's easy for that to just sort of roll off your tongue. 257 people killed on the 20th of Um And you, can, you kind of forget, not consciously, but it felt important, I think, to reinforce that there were people on this plane and here they are. Have you had much reaction since you published that? No, not really. No, no adverse reaction. I thought we might get a little bit because obviously it's not for everyone. I think I might have said that exact phrase in the story that went with it. But you did mention that um, the boyfriend of one of the victims saw it and has come to you since? Yeah, for example, there's been, well, there's a couple of people. One was Sarah Miles, who was in the original story we wrote. She's written a book. Uh, called Towards the Mountain, about her grandfather who was killed in the crash and who you can see briefly in that footage. He's a, an older guy with glasses taking his seat. Um, but since then, yeah, someone else got in touch to say that they recognised someone in that video. young woman walking sort of towards the camera wearing darker glasses, blonde hair, and this guy was her boyfriend at the time. They were very young teenagers. I think he'd never seen this footage before and to see it for the first time 40 years later, he was a lot of things came up, things that he didn't expect and things that he thought maybe he dealt with just seeing her there. And others spoke as well, Sarah Miles has spoken similarly about the effect seeing the footage had on her when she initially saw it and was quite shocked and a little offended that it had been used in the way it had been, you know, just a a B-roll on a TV documentary. Um, But then, you know, the actual personal relationship you have with seeing this family member, this loved one who died not long before they died, was beneficial in its own way and in its own different way to all of these people. When you go and talk to the families of the victims, what is the general feeling about this whole thing? Not just the the crash itself, but what happened since? They're not happy. As we said in the last episode, no one I spoke to across everything is happy about how Erebus played out, not just because of the scale of the tragedy, but everything that came afterwards. Nobody is satisfied with what's happened since and the families are, of course, within that, not only because of what they lost, they suffered, and the trauma, but it was 1979, and the way they were treated afterwards and the way they felt marginalised and just not listened to and you know, shut out of things. And still unresolved. And in New Zealand's apologised once, uh, 10 years ago, yeah. but you feel that there's an, another apology is due. I feel it's warranted. They've apologised, as you say, 10 years ago. That was for actually what I was just speaking about, the way that Air New Zealand handled or mishandled dealing with victims' families after the fact. They, in what way? They acknowledged that it was just, they just did it in a cold-hearted, distant way. Catherine Carter, the pilot's daughter, tells the story, told the story once of getting her father's belongings. They were left in a brown paper bag on the porch. Just kind of mind-blowing when you think about it now. So Air New Zealand apologised for that 10 years ago. Rob Fife was the chief executive, and rightly so. Air New Zealand inevitably made mistakes and undoubtedly let down people directly affected by the tragedy. I can't turn the clock back. I can't undo what has been done. But as I look forward, 
I would like to start the next step in our journey by saying sorry. But having looked through all of the Erebus story and the aftermath and the investigations, to me it was clear whatever you think were the causes or cause of the crash, there were systemic mistakes and operational mistakes, specifically operational mistakes made by Air New Zealand that without doubt contributed to this crash, whether or not they were contributing solely or partly or in a very small way. No question they did, and there were some pretty horrendous errors made. And they could apologise for that. They could, it, it's, unco- it's uncontested that they did these things, mm. and they played a role on the crash. And to those families who we just spoke about who are really unhappy with everything that's happened, I think a mere culpa of some sort would mean a lot to a lot of them. The problem with it is, after 40 years and after so much controversy, in New Zealand coming out and making another a second apology would be quite hard because it would take some explaining and it would scan as, oh, New Zealand's taking the blame for Erebus. And Michael Wright says there'll be a final White Silence podcast out tomorrow. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Michael Wright from Stuff. Mā te wā. 